Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambhutassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambhutassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambhutassa Buddhangamang sanghang namasahami coming into a interesting time of year. The weather's pretty firmly in the cold zone right now. Uh, so it's kind of winter, but we haven't started the winter retreat. But the work here kind of seems like it's somewhat over, because we can't really work outdoors anymore. So we're biding our time, waiting for the winter retreat to start. At least that's how it feels to me. We have these seasons that come and go in the monastery throughout our lives, marking the passage of time. And whenever I think about this, the end of the year is coming, reminded of that recollection that we're encouraged to do. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? That reflection is a powerful one because it connects to the other reflections that are also in that collection uh, of ten reflections for one who's gone forth, other places in the teaching, uh, the reflection on death, the reflection on aging, reflection on illness, the reflection on kama, all that is mine, reflection on, on um, the inevitable passing of everything that's mine, uh, it all passes in time. It all arises in time and then it vanishes and back into time. So those reflections are uh, very good to keep close to mind because they keep reminding us uh, to continually bear in mind what our priorities really are. Or if we're not sure what they are, those reflections can help us become a little more insightful into what's motivating us and how we're how we're considering our time. It's quite normal for all of us to suppose that we have all the time in the world. There's no rush. And for sure, it's, it's okay not to be rushed when it comes to doing a task or a chore. But the sense that we have 
this infinite unbounded time, which is especially uh, prominent when we're young. Uh, <laughs> I remember being 20 and thinking that my 40 was impossibly far away. And now that I'm 60, 40 still seems like it's impossibly far away. But it, it happens, and as those years just slip on by and they accelerate as you get older. And that's if you're lucky. If you're unlucky, you might not get that many years. There's no telling, really. It's interesting that the Buddha is pointing to this. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? This is one of the many places in the teaching where he reminds us that his teaching is not meant to be something that pays off in a future life and that we don't really need to do anything in this life. Uh, there's another reflection in that same collection of ten. Uh, a couple of different ones about uh, whether or not one's progressing in one's practice. Has my practice borne fruit with freedom or insight? So that at the end of my life, I need not feel ashamed when questioned by my spiritual companions. So you can see how these all hang together. If you're taking the job of being the Buddha's disciple really seriously, and focusing your your attention and your inclination of mind and the way that you use your time, then... Presumably, eventually, there'll be fruits of practice that you can brag about on your deathbed to your friends and spiritual companions. Of course, if you're that enlightened, you're probably not going to brag. But at least you won't feel ashamed. You'll uh, you'll know you did what the Buddha asked you to do. This is actually... uh, worth a lot of consideration. Uh, We we reflect on death, but we can't really imagine what it's like to be dead. But it's it's actually possible to imagine what it's like and even observe what it's like to approach death, to get sick and to be old and be bedridden and sort of enfeebled by your, your old age and your approaching death. Here in the monastery, we hear about people dying all the time. Every every month, it seems, someone passes away. Oftentimes, we, we uh, will get involved in some degree in uh, visiting people who are dying, counseling people who are dying, counseling people who are whose uh, friends and relatives are dying. And so after a few years, you start to get a sense of routine of dying. It's kind of a routine, just like being born. You know, it's very natural. It pretty much uh, 
uh, for most people, plays out the same way. Occasionally there's a tragic sudden death, a car accident, or something like that. But for the majority of people, it's just a gradual process where things break down and they don't repair themselves. And you can see that in aging. You, uh, you damage a finger or some skin, and maybe it repairs itself, but it takes longer than it used to. And there's this kind of accumulated damage that builds up in the joints and the skin and uh, other places in the body. The body just doesn't repair itself perfectly. And so these accumulated errors of repair or failures to repair, eventually they catch up with us. You know, our body doesn't have enough maneuvering room. Uh, we catch a cold or the pneumonia or some other disease will come and be our final disease and then we're stuck in bed for a while. Our body loses its ability to process nutrients, process liquids, we lose consciousness and we pass away. I've seen it with my own eyes. So there's a period of time for a lot of people where they, they're coming and going out of consciousness. Uh, they sleep a lot and they open their eyes and talk for a few minutes. And that's at the end of their life, talking to whoever is looking after them. So you can actually imagine that scene for yourself. It's not, uh, it's not beyond experience. And at that point, you really have nothing to look forward to. Just waiting for it to be over. And all you have uh, in terms of your life is what you can remember of it and what you, what you accomplished. And you can accomplish a, a fair bit in the human life. You can contribute to people's welfare and happiness. You can do good works. You can raise children or contribute to the to the upbringing and education of children in society. And so you can contribute to society in positive ways. And in your own heart, you can purify your heart, abandon the causes of suffering by taking the Buddha's teaching really into your heart and into your daily practice and giving it the appropriate priority Then when you're looking back from that perspective of your of your deathbed, there won't be anything to regret. Uh, there won't be a sense of missed opportunity or uh, failure to take advantage of the opportunity. The opportunity is a rare one. We uh, we're living in a very unique time in human history. Since the time of the Buddha, for a very long period of time, the teachings were just an oral tradition, memorized, recited. It takes a fair bit of energy to get uh, exposure to teachings like that. Uh, most serious practitioners were monastics, and several, uh, several who weren't monastics, lay supporters, 
had to put a lot of energy into visiting monks and getting them to teach. Uh, but now we have it all written down. We can read it for ourselves. There's uh, a, a, a tidal wave of uh, modern era commentary on the Buddha's teaching. The teachings come to the West, so Western culture hasn't known about the Buddha's teaching for uh, pretty much all of its existence until just very recently, last couple hundred years. And its ability to be available in this form of fully ordained Western monastics, ordained by Westerners, teaching in Western culture and Western language, uh, never happened before. Here we are, practicing in a monastery in Perth, Ontario. It's just impossible. How could this be happening? <laughs> and yet that's the opportunity that's, that's before us, this uh, amazing manifestation of the Buddha's dispensation is right within our, our grasp, because here we are. And you can be here right in the middle of it and waste your time. <laughs> you, could, you could spend your whole time just puttering, thinking about other stuff, and thinking about your problems, not really practicing. Because the, uh, uh, there's no pressure, really. Uh, we have the structure of the monastery, the morning and evening pujas, when we're, we're doing pujas. Uh, there's the relatively low distraction burden, so there's not much in terms of television or uh, other distractions. If you're in the office, it's a little distracting, but it's not too hard to get out of there. There's chores, there's work, but really there's a lot of time. If you, if you look for it, you can find a fair bit of time every day to focus on practice. And practice doesn't necessarily mean that you have to wear a hole in the carpet walking back and forth doing walking meditation. Or that you have to give yourself calluses on your bum sitting all the time. Uh, practice means keeping, your, keeping this priority in mind. How am I spending my time? Am I, am I prioritizing things correctly? Service to the community is important, is important, but it's not the only thing. Uh, reading suttas is important, but it's not the only thing. Listening to Dhamma talks is important, but there's other things as well. So there's this kind of constellation of things that we can do that count as practice. It's not just sitting and walking. Although sitting and walking uh, are where the practice really tends to develop. In, uh, in terms of insight and wisdom, so we need to we need to take these opportunities that our circumstances provide to settle the mind in the body, make it as still as we can, and then direct it to the themes of insight. And so if you're not sure what the themes of insight are, a few of them are spelled out very clearly in the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana Sutta is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It's 
one of the classics. Of course, there's a lot of commentary that has uh, modern interpretations of what it means and how to practice it. So this material is all readily available here in the monastery. You can pick it up in uh, listening to talks and to reading books, talking to fellow practitioners. Uh, but what it really comes down to in this tradition is developing your practice well enough that you can pretty consistently watch what your mind is doing. If you watch what your mind is doing, then you'll see it causing problems. It'll make you suffer. When you don't get what you want, or when you have to put up with something you don't want, there'll be unsatisfactoriness. And as long as the mind is engaged in uh, wanting and not wanting, liking and disliking, there's always going to be some degree of mental suffering. It can be having to do with mental suffering arising due to a reaction to physical pain, or inconvenience, or social irritation, or any number of things. Pretty much anything that we're all going to be touched by in our lives. So if you see that your mind generates suffering, then, you, uh, then you're practicing correctly. If you don't know that your mind's generating suffering, you just think that, that uh, this or that is bad, or this is, or that is, is wrong. Uh, it's a monastery. How wrong could it be? It's probably actually okay, whatever it is. But the mind doesn't, you know, the mind reacts to things uh, out of proportion to their seriousness. Really, as long as we're not in the middle of a famine and civil war, in the scheme of things, things are pretty good. But the mind can still react uh, very negatively to uh, very small uh, social slights, uh, uh, very small accumulations of irritation and annoyance, and become uh, grouchy and dissatisfied. and can generate a lot of, a lot of uh, pain for itself. If you're practicing correctly, then you'll see this arising. You'll see that this is happening, and you'll want to study it. So study what your mind is doing, especially when it's generating discomfort. That's the problem that we came here to solve, actually. So all of practice is meant both to give us the opportunity to study this topic, and also, the monastery is kind of set up, whether intentionally or not, but it's kind of set up to generate just enough social friction, just enough activity, that you'll probably get triggered. You know, like it's, not, it's not a special um, kind of hothouse environment where nothing can go wrong. It's not some special paradise. It's not as distracting as most lay lives, but it's still got some distraction in it. And it's got plenty of people in it. And of course, most of our suffering arises 
having to do in one way or another with other people. So there's enough people here and enough different personalities and enough activity to occasionally push your buttons. And if, if you're uh, if you think that your button's being pushed or uh, irritation arising or a feeling of frustration or being inconvenienced or not getting what you want, if you think that's indicative of something having gone wrong, um, then it's worth taking another look. Whenever anything bothers you, one way of looking at it is to consider, well, what if, what if this is just... Uh, like my kama is, or the Buddha is sending me a test. I'm being tested. This is like a pop quiz. And uh, have I been studying? Do I know the material well enough to be able to, to, to perform well on this pop quiz? And it can be anything. It can be, uh, uh, you know, someone starts a, a motor when you're trying to meditate there. Start blowing leaves or blowing snow, or um, uh, you're, it's time for lunch, and when you get through the food line, you see that like all the chocolate cake is gone. Uh, it could be uh, seeing something that you really like uh, is coming up, with, uh, either at the meal or uh, some other event that's happening in the monastery where you're you're anticipating delight. And so all these are opportunities not to um, completely get carried away by the emotions and the reactions of the mind, but rather to, to uh, see it as uh, uh, something like a test. And the nice thing about these tests is, is you can fail them as many times as you like. And they, they keep coming. Uh, so you uh, so every time you take one of these little tests, these little quizzes, um, if you if you succeed, you can feel really really great because you you saw maybe uh, a trigger in the environment. Uh, someone says something to someone moves your shoes. That's my favorite. <laughs> I used to get really annoyed when people move my shoes come into the boot room and I put my shoes on that boot tray and now they're over there. And for some reason that would just really uh, uh, inflame my <laughs> my natural irritation. I become quite quite annoyed by this. Who, you know, why are people moving my stuff around? And uh, you know, I could even recognize in the moment that this kind of an overreaction to a very trivial thing. Probably someone was doing a chore, doing me a favor. But I get I, the annoyance comes up, right? It just comes up because it's triggered by this contact of seeing something get moved, and it's conditioned by my own history, where uh, I had lots of brothers and sisters who liked to pr play pranks on me. <laughs> so if anything got moved, it meant that like there's like a, uh, a spider inside it, or uh, you know something, some prank. So. Uh, being able to see that your mind does these things to you and how, how your conditioning sets you up to react in a certain way is uh, something that we have to really see over and over again until we go, well, what if I just tried something different? 
So uh, it's possible if you're on your toes to see something like irritation or annoyance rising up rather than just sort of accepting, oh, this is mine. Here it comes again, you know. Or this is the way I am. I'm just accepting it. And irritation, annoyance, anger, frustration, sadness, despair, anxiety, fear, every negative mind state you can name, they all have the same evolution. Something comes along in our experience, one or another mental or physical contacts, often in a social context. If you feel like you're low on triggers, you could, uh, well, I'm not going to recommend it, but if you find yourself in the world, you can just you know, look at the news for a few minutes and you'll find something there to get triggered by. Um, and so our triggers are always eliminating several things. One is that the fact that we're triggerable, right? that we're, uh, we're cause and effect machines, our minds are cause and effect machines. That's very important to recognize over and over again. Uh, the Buddha says it's the case. Uh, he talks about dependent origination. He talks about kama. Um, and this is all pointing to the, the linkage between conditions and effects. So our minds are pro- constantly presenting us with effects that rest upon conditions. And none of that's under our control. Uh, so the effects are often unsatisfactory. And they're transient. They come and they go. So when we're seeing these characteristics of our experience, then we're, we're actually studying the Dhamma in real time. We're seeing uh, Dukkha and the unsatisfactoriness. We're seeing uh, anicca in the transience, the variegated, constantly changing nature, and of course we're seeing if we're if we're sensitive to it, we can we get the hint that because it's not under our control, it doesn't really belong to us. So, when it comes to practice and how well we are spending our time, uh, walking walking meditation, sitting meditation are really good because they give you a, a formal, structured way of exploring this these aspects of mind. If your mind is too flighty and you can't seem to focus on things like recollecting your recent painful reactions to trivial contacts and uh, unpacking that to see the dukkha, the anicca, the anatta. If your mind's too scattered, too distracted, thinking about all kinds of crazy stuff, well, that's when you use your practice to try to settle it and to try to get it to be calm and still. So sitting meditation, walking meditation, following the breath, following the footsteps, watching the body postures, paying attention to what's happening right now, in the present moment, in the physical body, it's very grounding. And it's, it's, uh, it helps dispel distraction and um, uh, mental flightiness. But as soon as your mind is stable enough to start paying attention, just make sure that you don't leave out what's going on in the mind. Because that's where the action is. That's where the suffering arises. 
Uh, I've met a lot of people, a lot of yogis along the way, who, who've become convinced that what the Buddha taught was you should just sit down and focus your mind and just kind of blank out, or kind of like uh, focus on a meditation object and just absorb into that. And while you're there, there's no there's no suffering. And that's that's there you're done, you're finished. But that's not really how it works. The Buddha's pointing to is this quality of non-grasping, which yields uh, non-entanglement and non-suffering, uh, but real-time daily life. So that a, a strong practitioner can experience that um, at moments, or perhaps many moments, or perhaps hours, or perhaps all day long of knowing what's arising in the mind, seeing its tendency to cause suffering, and just abandoning it before it gets going too far. And then every time that happens, whether it happens a little bit or a lot, uh, you get to see all four noble truths happening in real time. You get to see the suffering that's implicit in some grasping, the first noble truth, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is grasping. And then you see that just by dispelling it, just by saying, uh, okay, someone moved my shoes. I could get really annoyed right now. Or I could just drop it. And when you try to drop it, and sometimes you find that you are able to drop it, then everything opens up. Like there's, Everything's okay. Check your shoes for spiders, and if there's no spiders in there, everything's great. Uh, and then the mind at that moment the mind is freed from its habitual entanglement with suffering with owning things with with identifying with mental states Uh, and, and that's the mark of a practitioner the ability to free the mind and the heart from suffering that only comes about through practice. And that's the fourth noble truth, and the Eightfold Noble Path. So there you are. You have this great opportunity, very rare in the human realm. The Buddha says it's very rare to be born human. Of all the births that take place in all the realms of existence, most of them aren't human. Humans are pretty rare. A very small percentage. Uh, there's a sutta in which he tries to give you a sense of the odds. Imagine a blind turtle <laughs> in, this, in the great ocean. And he surfaces for a gulp of air once every hundred years. And in that same ocean is floating uh, an ox yoke. It's just kind of a, uh, something about the size of a life preserver. And what are the odds that the turtle's <coughs> turtle, when it comes up, will poke its head through the center of that yoke? Um, pretty unlikely. But it could happen. That's about the same likelihood of being born human. That's how rare it is. Um, how rare is it for a Buddhist to arise? Not that common. How rare is it to be born alive human uh, in the in the presence 
and having access to the Buddha's teaching. Okay, that's pretty unusual. Um, how rare is it to be have all those conditions occur and then be one of the people that can actually recognize the Dhamma when it's being taught as something valuable and decide to pursue it? Well, you're really beating the odds now. It's almost like you should go to Vegas and just you know, keep that, see how much luck you can get out of that. But you're better off just staying here at the monastery. So here's this rare opportunity. This is this practice is elegant. It's beautiful. It's functional. It works really well. Um, it's constantly inviting you to come back and look again, look deeper, still the mind again, watch the suffering again. Find the cause of suffering again. Practice, study, learn, investigate, and experience. Taste that freedom when it comes. And then you're really spending your time well. And your time is not wasted. And whether you have become an arahant or not, um, you'll have experienced fruit. If you only know the truth about arising and passing away directly, even for a second, then you've seen the truth. You've seen the truth that the Buddha is pointing out. And if you know suffering and the cause of suffering and the cessation of suffering, even just a little bit, then you're tasting the fruit of the Buddha's teaching. And so that at the end of your life, when questioned by your spiritual companions, your practice has borne the fruit with freedom and insight, so you don't have to be ashamed. So I'll leave those thoughts for your consideration. Handamayan Dhamma Avodakataya Sadhu Karanda Dhamma Say Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu